Well, if you don't know who I am, my name is John Irwin. I'm the associate pastor here at ABF, and uh, I get the privilege of starting a new series. I think uh, over the last 36 years of ministry, I've preached on Father's Day two-thirds of the time, usually because the, the senior pastor is like on vacation, golfing. But I got to tell you, this year's senior pastor, he's out working today, uh, getting cars and hot dogs ready, and uh, he asked if I would preach this morning, and so I'm grateful to do that. We're beginning a series called Average Joes, Average Joes, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And if you get your notes out, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel 16, but I think we all know that the Bible is filled with just average people. Now, we think that they're bigger than life, and we kind of put them up on a pedestal, but Nearly every single biblical character had some flaw to them that we can relate to, and in fact, probably the Bible gives us more about these characters, uh, kind of warnings to avoid versus examples to follow even at some times. And I think these biblical characters, we inflate them in our minds thinking they were just super talented, that's why God used them, or they're just really strongly spiritual, or maybe they're supremely gifted. But we're going to see in this series that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And our first character in this series, we're going to look at David, and I'm entitling this sermon an eighth-round pick. Now, some of you are not familiar with sports analogies, but it comes from the sports world. And I'd like to tell you about one of the famous late-round picks in all of NFL history. His name was Tom Brady. He was an unheralded player. He was he was drafted 199th in the NFL draft in 2000. He was a sixth-round pick. In fact, he was the seventh quarterback chosen. In fact, notables that I'm sure just come rolling off your tongue were drafted before him, like Spurgeon Wynn and Giovanni Carmazzi, who had like four days in their NFL career. And, uh, but this is University of Michigan quarterback has gone on in these first 14 years of his career to win two NFL uh, MVPs, three Super Bowls, and has been named eight Pro Bowls, Pro, Pro Bowls. But when he was selected, he was just an average Joe. I mean, most people would have not predicted this kind of success. And I think it's easy for us to look at biblical characters and say, oh, they were destined for greatness. And I'm going to take the position that biblical characters that we study are often just average people that are used by God in extraordinary ways. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we look at Your Word, we ask that You would bring it alive, that the messenger would not confuse the message as we take a look at David this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are going to look at David, and I want to give you a little background on him background on David. He is uh, more chapters, or other than Jesus Christ, more chapters are written about David than any other biblical character. There are 66 chapters allotted to David, and in comparison, that's like 14 chapters um, for uh, Joseph and 11 for, for Jacob. And uh, in the New Testament, he's referenced 59 times. And so, let's look at the text together, and we'll see what God has to say. Now, I want you to be clear. We're not looking at who David is and so how great he is, and therefore you be just like David. What we're going to look at is what does God do to take ordinary people like you and I, and how does he end up using us, and how does he work with us? 
as those kind of average Joes. Let's look at the text together. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Now there are two ways to kind of teach through a text that's a narrative like this. You can just kind of tell the story and then save it to the end and give kind of the principles that you're deriving from the text, or you can give the principles as you go. So I'm going to just give you each principle as I see it in the text, and we'll kind of tell the story as we go along. Principle number one, how does God use ordinary people? Number one, God often uses the failure of others to bring about change. God often used the failures of other people to bring about change. Now, Samuel is still grieving the fact that Saul is going to be replaced. He's going to be removed. He's still serving as king, and you can kind of imagine he's wistfully kind of looking back over his shoulder, wondering, where did this go wrong? Where did this go wrong? Now, it is not surprising because if you know your history, who was Saul? Who, who wanted a king? Who, who, whose idea was this? Who was it? It was Israel's idea. Did God say, yeah, this is an awesome idea. You need to have a king. Did God kind of go with that plan? No, he's going, this is not going to end well for you. This is not good. You're not going to like having a king. I'm your king. And yet, he said, okay, get what you wanted. And so Saul ends up becoming king. And we know he was popular and he was tall and he was handsome. But kind of the summary of his whole life of, of leading the, the children of Israel is summarized in first fifth, uh, chapter 15, verse 11. He says, this is what God says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not carried out my commands. And Samuel says, in verse, down in verse 35 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So I won't get into the theology of, of God's choosing Saul and how he came about and him being rejected, but we do know that one big deal was that Saul just later in his, in his career rejected God's counsel in his life. And so we have to be careful in leadership, you know, that, that as we want to, to do the right thing, we never compromise what God's calling us to do. We've got to do even the hard things. And sometimes leaders, like Saul, he rejected God's direction in his life. Now, we don't know how this conversation transpires between Saul or between Samuel and God, but it's clear that there's got to be another choice. We've got to go on to plan B or number two. And so that plan B is David. He's from the tribe of Judah, we know from Genesis chapter 49. He's going to be the line of the Messiah is going to come through, through David and we see that God has a new plan. Let's look at it, verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? How can I go and make these sacrifices? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 3, you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate for you. So there's a private little deal going on between Samuel and God. He's going to identify to Samuel who the next king of Israel is going to be. It's not clear even to Jesse or the boys that you're going to see in just a moment that there's something special, but that'll be revealed shortly. So principle number two, how does God work with ordinary people? 
Trust in God's plan even if it doesn't make sense to you. Trust in God's plan even if it doesn't make sense to you. Now, Samuel is predictably a little nervous. Why would he be nervous about anointing a new king of Israel while the present king is alive? Do we see any problems with this plan? From a human standpoint, does this sound a little crazy? Saul, we know, has gone, you know, later on, we know that he has some kind of wild fluctuating emotions and some crazy stuff goes on with him. And so anointing a new king would have been seen as treason. In fact, he's putting his life on the line. And I think about that with us. We probably don't have to put our life on the line, but there are times where you know God is telling you very specifically, I need you to do this. And do you ever go, ah, I'm not so sure about that. And now, we would never want to publicly admit that, right? Like, we just kind of quietly have a little argument with God. I think many biblical characters, before they actually do what God's called them to do, get a little nervous about it. Think about Moses. Going to lead my people out of Israel or out of Egypt. And like, Moses is going, you've got to be kidding me, you know? And he tells them things like, yeah, you've got to pick up a snake by the tail, any snake handler knows you, you just don't do a, that thing. I mean, just all kinds of stuff where people, God says you're going to do that. And we go, oh, I don't think so. No, I really need you to do this. I don't think so. This is just not part of my, it's not my gifting, you know. And we give all kinds of excuses. And I think uh, maybe even Samuel is kind of pushing back a little bit uh, to the Lord. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you know God has asked you to do something but it does not make sense to you on a human plane. Raise your hand. You just, you know in your heart, God, I, I know this is, this is, he's, this is crazy, God. And, and you kind of, kind of push back mentally. I've got a great verse for all of us. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is just such a great verse of comfort for all of us, right? When we're in that place where you know God is speaking to you and yet you're going, oh, I'm not so sure about this. I've had many of those times in my life where, ah, God, really? This is the plan? I remember when we were in Huntington Beach, we were serving in this great youth ministry in Huntington Beach for 10 years, and God gives us a call to move to Edina, Minnesota. Now, I'm a, I'm a Southern California dude. I, I grew up in West Covina, Huntington Beach. Now, if you're not looking at that and looking strangely at me, you've got to understand, this is a big deal, leaving Huntington Beach where water actually flows and moving to Minnesota where, like, Lakes are frozen, and they, they drive cars on these lakes. That's, these are crazy people, right? Why would you move me to Edina, Minnesota? Plus Edina. Man, it sounds like a blood disease. Come on. You know, <laughs> what's up with that, God? And in fact, you know, Edina was kind of a, a fluent suburb, uh, maybe kind of wherever you think is where people live. Maybe it's like Agoura Hills or Newport Beach or whatever. You know, Edina, we kind of used to made an acrostic for Edina. It stood for every day, I need attention. E-D-I-N-A, every day, I need attention. And so um, I'm saying, Lord, are you sure this is part of your plan? I'm, I'm just an average Joe being a youth pastor in Huntington Beach. Well, the elders are a little worried about this plan too. So look at verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. 
And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? And he said, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now the elders are worried because it's the equivalent teachers, if you're a teacher, of the principal coming to your classroom, all right? Or the boss sitting in on your sales meeting or whatever. You know, when the, when the prophet's saying he's coming to town and it's Bethlehem, it's not on the way to anywhere. It's 25 miles out of his way. What is the deal? Usually there was judgment. There was something bad about to go down and they're a little worried about it, but he put them at ease. He, is, he invites Jesse and his sons and he sanctifies them. He, he does a special deal with them. And at this point, we know that Jesse knows something's up. His, one of his sons are going to be chosen for something, but I don't think it's even perfectly clear what, about, what God's about to do. And what it allows God to do is see this parade of seven brothers being paraded before Samuel, and he's going to identify one of those as the next king of Israel. Now, note, in this part of the story, David is not present. It's just those seven sons. We're going to see that in just a moment. Look at verse 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab. This is Samuel looking at this lineup of boys. He looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I mean, Eliab's the logical choice. He's the firstborn. He already had that inheritance. The spiritual blessing has been laid upon him. He's probably good, tall, handsome, rugged. Um, he's used to being in charge. He's kind of got all these little ones tumbling after him in succession. And for a moment here, just realize what it's the weight of responsibility that the firstborn carries in a family. In fact, look at you out here. How many of you are firstborns in your family? All right? Man, your parents apologized to you in advance because they made all their mistakes on you, right? And then, you know, and so the firstborns are used to taking responsibility. Is that not true, right? Firstborns, identify yourselves again. Look at them. Many of them have pens in their hands. <laughs> they, they are, they're, they're going to fill out. Every, they, I better get every fill-in right here, right? Now, contrast the firstborns and then like the end of the litter. Where are the babies of the family? We're just glad you found the room, all right? So we're just glad you're here. They're here for the party. There's hot dogs. It's all good. Uh, where, where are the middleborns? You're somewhere in the middle. Well, who cares about you anyway? Um, oh, oh, so hurtful, but so true, so true. Yeah. Um, so Eliab's the firstborn. But probably the seminal verse in this chapter comes from verse 7. You've Mark it down in your Bible. This is one you've seen before, and then I'll give you the principle. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Principle number three, God is more concerned with our internal godliness than the external glitter of our life. The internal godliness versus the external glitter. Inner goodness versus outer greatness. In fact, do a little T chart in your notes here. Just make a T and put God on, one, on the left side, put man on the right, and let's just compare and contrast. God looks at the eternal, man looks at the temporal. God looks at the internal, man looks at the external. God looks at the inward, 
Man looks at the outward. God looks at the inner goodness. Man looks at the outer greatness. So you see that contrast, and that's what we see in, in verse 7. In fact, one, um, one famous author, Dr. James Dobson, said, beauty is the gold coin of existence, and intelligence is the silver coin of human worth. We all kind of get enamored with the exterior. Is that not true? Now, in your heart of hearts, be honest with me, don't you kind of like, you know, being around famous people or, you know, people that, you know, look good in public and you just, you know, you want to do a photo bomb and get in the picture with them or whatnot? I think that, you know, if I'm just being honest, I, I, I could get caught up with that a little bit personally. In fact, we've had for years on our bucket list, at least on mine, is I wanted to be an extra in a movie, and it's come to pass two weeks ago. <clears throat> I was just hanging out with, I'm name dropping right now, just hanging out a little bit with uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he's coming out with this new movie called American Sniper, and I'm an extra, along with 150 other people who will never be seen in this movie. <laughs> but hey, I shook hands with Bradley Cooper. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Now, of course, I can't show you any of these pictures because it's documented, and for safety of the film, it will be released later, and you'll talk to my agent, you know. But now, the, the funny thing is, we all kind of go through that where, like, man, I, I wish I could, you know, you know, get Puig to sign a baseball or, you know, man, or if, if you're from Chicago, maybe a Jordan, you know, basketball or something like that. But the bottom line is, do you know that there are average Joes right here in our, on, in, our, in our student ministries that, like, they hang with, like, famous people? You don't know this, but I'm going to show you a picture. Chris Kerner, our junior high director, all right? He's an actor, and Dude, the guy was in a movie with Eva Longoria, average Joe right here with the, with the glitter and the glamour of the famous Hollywood starlet. Hey, but it doesn't end there. How about Josh Antiojo, our high school pastor? I mean, look at this. He's hanging with D. Wade, all right? Now, some of you are going, who's D. Wade? Well, talk to someone who likes basketball and knows something about Miami, all right? But the funny thing was he got this call and he had to go open a gym at Oaks Christian and got to do this. So we all have kind of this, this image of the external, the famous, the rich, the people that, that make the headlines. But God says, you know what? In the, in the grand economy of things, not that important, not really that big a deal because God wants to know what's going on the inside, not just what's happening on the outside. Well, seven brothers passed by Samuel. Look at verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab, that's number two, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Principle number four, God chooses whom he uses. God chooses whom he uses, not who we think is the next right great guy. And in fact, you know, they're probably numbers two and three chronologically. Uh, in fact, maybe that's how the father thinks they're worth, etc. Now, here's something interesting. There are four more brothers that pass by. They don't even get mentioned. Look at verse 10. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen these. Now, you got to get nervous for Jesse because he's thinking, what's wrong with my boys? i got seven strapping boys, and none of them are going to qualify. None of them are good enough. They don't make the pick. They're not chosen. 
what is going on here? And so you imagine Jesse's wondering, what is God about to do? And so that leads us to the next principle. Look at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? Is this everyone? And he said, this is Jesse speaking, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Two very derogatory terms. So principle number five, God often calls us when we least expect it. David had no idea that this was going on. He's out tending the sheep. He's kind of forgotten. He's an afterthought. He's the runt of the litter. Thus, he's the eighth round pick, seven brothers rejected. And when we say rejected, think of America's Got Talent with four X's by the judges. <coughs> rejected, all of them, right? And so now he's down to David. Now, the only person more obscure than David in this story are the two sisters who aren't even mentioned as even existing. And so David's chosen, and here's what happens. He's the youngest. When it says he's a mere youth, this isn't just, oh, he's a nice little boy. This is kind of a term of derision. And he's tending sheep. Let's just go back in our history. Is a, is a sheep, a sheep herder, is that kind of like, Mm, yeah, I can't wait to take care of the sheep. Yes, no, no, no. In fact, I'm not going to give its modern-day equivalent, but there is a TV show called uh, what, America's Dirtiest Jobs, and the guy does just crazy jobs. This is not a great job, all right? Now, the, the deal is that oftentimes it was such a scorn job that slaves did this kind of work, right? So he's kind of saying, well, I got, I got David, I mean, seriously, David. Now, I've been in some of those kind of jobs, all right? And let's just clarify real quickly. No job is a bad job. In this economy, if you got a job, praise the Lord, right? And so, but I remember my first job was when I was 16. It was Christmas vacation, and I worked in a sausage factory, all right? Every day during Christmas break, I got up in the morning at 5 o'clock. I had to be in the, in the factory at 6 o'clock, and this is a meat locker. It's like 35 degrees in there, and I'm stripping sausage casings for when it explodes from its casing, and then you put it back in like it, you know, it's just, it's disgusting, all right? And I can't believe any of you eat sausage, or I do either. Um, that was my first job, all right? Then after that, my next job was in the summers between uh, after high school and college, and I worked for the L.A. County Flood Control District as a, as a day laborer, and I, I would cut brush you know, in the mountains up in the San Gabriel Mountains here, and it was hard work. It was not glamorous work, uh, and I was never so glad for the summer to be over. I loved summer until I started working, and then I couldn't wait for school to begin again, right? So I had a job, but I, I had to just do that job. It's how I paid for college. You know, David was out in the wilderness tending sheep and would kill lions and bears. I killed a few things when I was working for the Flagland District. They were called rattlesnakes, and like eight of them in two summers. And I remember one time I was cutting brush, and I'm up in this brush, and I'm cutting, and be the, beneath my feet, about a foot, I hear this, and there's a rattlesnake right between my legs, and I'm looking down, he's looking up, and I'm going, this is not going to end well for one of us, right? <laughs> And uh, think about any cartoon with the Roadrunner in it, and I am doing this, and, and I just got out of there, and one of my buddies took care of business. And so, um, I've been in those jobs. 
But on a more practical matter, there's people in this church all the time that are doing stuff in an ordinary way, unnoticed. No one gives them the applause. No, give, no one gives them the high five. Um, I know it's Father's Day, but I got to tell you, you ladies who had or have two or three or four kids under the age of five or six, and you're in the diaper stage, and you're going like, will this ever end? I used to be an executive in an ad agency, and now I'm changing diapers and cleaning up spit, and I don't feel very needed. I don't feel very valued. I don't feel like, wow, I went to college, and now I'm doing this. And we know that being a mom is maybe the most honorable profession in the world. Or maybe you're that young guy and you're in your first job and you're just killing it. You're doing everything by the book and you've got colleagues that are just, they're not telling the truth. They're kissing up to the boss and, and you're going, what? God, I just want to do a good job for, for you. Or maybe you're in a job that nobody knows, but you know that being honest is what makes a difference. And you're a person of integrity and you're doing the right thing and just being who God's called you to be. Or maybe you're that dad. You hate your job. And the reason you go to it is because you're, you're putting food on the table for your family. Your kids have no idea how hard it is for you to wake up in the morning, put one feet, then the other foot, you slide out of bed, but you do it because that's what you gotta do. I think David had that kind of job. There was no glamour in it. Every day, sheep. And think about it. God was preparing him for something greater, and I think that's the dream of all of us. God, don't use whatever I'm doing now to be wasted. God, use me right now. Prepare me. Even if I don't like what I'm doing, I don't get what I'm doing, let me use it. Think about David. Look at what God did for him. Can you imagine an interview with David at this point in his life, a media interview? So, David, I hear you're the new king of Israel. What, what's prepared you for, uh, you know, this new task? Well, actually, um, I'm a pretty patient person. Why is that? Well, I was a sheep herder. Uh, and you can see the quizzical eye of the interviewer. Yeah. Well, sometimes you got to be patient. Sometimes you need to think and not just overreact. He goes, plus another thing, you know, I had a lot of time I had. Uh, I came up with this deal, man, and it's pretty cool. I got this slingshot thing, and I've learned to really throw a stone. Like, I can do like 40 yards straight as an arrow. Now, you know the story. That comes in handy a little later in life. Or how about this? Man, yeah, it's tough because you got to stay up at night, and many times I was just crying out to God, and I started, that's when I started writing some of my songs down. Just kind of took some notes, and I'd sing them to God, and hmm, little did we know that many, many years later, those songs to God written in the twilight of the early morning would become some of our favorite psalms. So in obscurity, God began to prepare David. Some of you are working in obscurity. And you have no idea what God might be preparing you for down the road. Amen? Amen. And so you see this response 
in verse 11, then Samuel said to, Dave, to Jesse, well, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he went and brought him. Now, now it describes David. He said he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. He says, we're not sitting down for dinner until you get this kid here. So this is pressure on. They send somebody else after him. David's been out in the fields. He probably smells not so good, probably pretty ripe. And um, so they're waiting for him while they're working on the meal. And it just, just kind of a blow by in Scripture. It just says he was ruddy. Now, we don't know what that means. Maybe he was red-faced, you know. Uh, he, I think the idea is he stood out as opposed to the predominant culture of the day. You know, in a dark-skinned culture, um, he, he looked fair-skinned. He's probably 15 to 17 years old at the time, um, and yet there's a, a more important description, not just physically, but what's going on spiritually with him. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, this is, well, I'll come back to this in just a second. Note that. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and from that day forward, David, his life was changed. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. So it's done in front of his brothers. You've got to imagine how this is going down with them. Seven older brothers going, you've got to be kidding. Are you serious? Think about the, you know, you've you got to be kidding. By the way, we have another story in Scripture that I'll look at uh, later this summer. Joseph had some older brothers who thought, you got to be kidding. And in fact, anytime an older brother gets passed by in the Scripture, I think the phrase is, you got to be kidding, right? Our self-worth, our estimation of ourselves is much greater at times than it should be. And so, I think it's at that moment, we can't prove it from the text, but historically, Josephus tells us that... Um, it, the, the oral tradition was that the moment he's being anointed with oil, Samuel is whispering in David's ear and says, you will be the next king. And as he utters that, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Now, I won't get into the theology of the Holy Spirit today, but clearly the men in Scripture and the women in Scripture, God uses them, not because they're so great, they're so handsome, they're so talented, they're so spiritual, they're so gifted. It's because the Spirit of God does something in them. And I wonder, I just, I theorize, one of our elders and I were talking through this this week via email, I wonder if David would have been any different if he didn't know the call on his life early on in his life, or because of God's call in his life at 15 or 17, he then began to make choices that forever changed the destiny of his future. So here's what I'm voting for. Young person in this room, God has his hand on you. And you may not be the next president of the United States, but if you will yield to the Holy Spirit and let Him lead you in your choices and directions in your life, it will change the course of your existence. And you can go, do, 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 this is a twilight moment. No, I think it's a God moment. Because there are plenty of people 
young people, who will tell you, you're not going to measure up, you're not good enough, etc. And parents, there's plenty of you that have sat in this room listening to lies about whatever, and God still can use you if you allow His Holy Spirit to use you. You get your agenda to the side, let God's agenda be primary in your life. And so the Spirit of God came on him mightily. And that leads me to my two final points in our outline today, to just ask this question, what caused God to choose David? He's an eighth round pick. He's the eighth son from the tribe of Jesse. He goes from a sheep herder to a king. And I'm going to suggest to you these final two principles that will summarize his life. Principle number six, your character trumps your credentials. Your, te- your, your character will trump your credentials. The summary of David's life in 1 Samuel 13 said that he was a man after God's own heart. It's not based on his credentials, his charisma, his competence. It's based on his character. Not because he was physically impressive. He, you know, he's a red-haired guy in a dark-skinned culture. Wasn't necessarily politically correct. He probably wasn't that socially skilled. He was a loner taking care of sheep. Didn't get an MBA from Jerusalem University. Educationally, who knows, you know. Emotionally, he wasn't a headline grabber, no, no big ego. He wasn't on the career track. He wasn't a CEO. He had never planned to be king. But God had plans from him for day one. And I want to suggest that there are three qualities of this character of ours that God wants to develop in us, and He developed them in David. Number one, David had this spiritual intensity. He had a spiritual intensity. Second Chronicles 69, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are completely His. He had a spiritual intensity. There was something internal that drove him, and it wasn't the headlines. His heart was right with God. Now, we know David made lots of mistakes. We're only looking at his original call today. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, David's character wasn't built by the marbled columns of pride. It was built by the clay and straw bricks of faithfulness. It was built, by the, uh, it was built with faithfulness in the little things, the unseen, the unknown, the unappreciated, and the unapplauded. But he had this spiritual passion. When God gazes over our congregation, what does He see? What does He see in us? Are we people whose hearts are completely His? And if you are new in your faith, maybe this is a new thought that that God's looking to you and in in your life, in your soul, He wants people who are sold out. Secondly, the characteristic is that He has a servant's identity. Psalm 78, 7, and he chose David his servant. After he's anointed, where does David go? No one remembers this part of the story. After he's anointed, where does David go? Back to the sheep, verse 19. Goes back to doing his day job. Do you know it's going to be 14 more years before he actually serves as king? Talk about a waiting room. He waits 14 years. He's the king-elect. Didn't demand his rights. Didn't say, hey, 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 I need to sit at the training table here. I got to be eating better now. And number three, he had a shepherd's integrity. Psalm 78, 72. 
David shepherded them with integrity of heart. There's all different definitions of integrity, but I like this one. Integrity can be defined as honesty when no one is watching. It is the unbending yardstick that measures the character of our life. And one of the ways that we're a person of integrity is you want to get it, you want to be honest in the little things. Being honest in the little things in life. I'm reminded of a story of a friend of mine. His name is Dewey Bertolini, and I thought no one had ever heard of this guy until someone last service said that he was his, this guy was their youth pastor. And, um, you know, as speakers, uh, people tell stories sometimes, and as pastors, I don't know about you, but it's like, how long was that fish, really? Um, And they kind of exaggerate the story. And so, I've been in a dialogue with Dewey. We, we've been friends for years, and I, and I emailed him yesterday. I said, Dewey, I'm going to tell this story about you, and I want to get it right. And it was so fun to reconnect with him and him verifying that what I'm about to tell you is exactly the way it went down. Because he was probably one of my famous, favorite youth pastors when I was a youth pastor to bring in to speak at camps, and just God used him in a powerful way with kids. So he tells the story of having spoken at this event and he got paid for it, right? That's always a good thing. And he was a struggling youth pastor, not making a lot of money, and so any of these extra speaking gigs are nice to, you know, a little coin in your pocket. So he goes to the bank the next day to cash the check. He, he's asking for the cash. The teller's putting 20s down on the, on the counter, and she gives him $20 too much. And he's, for a moment, just a brief moment, he says, ah, oh, be nice to have the extra 20. I can't do that. And so he just stops right in there, text says, hey, ma'am, I think you gave me $20 too much. And without flinching, she says, I know exactly what I did. I was at your thing last night. I just wanted to see if you practice what you preach. Ay, 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 back, 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 back. He said it was one of the defining moments of his life, a little-known youth pastor doing a little thing right, being honest in the little things. You know what separates ordinary Christians from extraordinary Christians? The extraordinary Christian is the person who has developed a habit of doing the right thing, the little thing, and he repeats that behavior over and over again. Some of you hate getting up in the morning, but you do because that early morning time is when you and God do business. And you know, if you're like me and you stay up too late at night, oh, it's hard to get up but you make the right choice and you do it and you repeat it over and over again. And so David was that guy. He had that kind of character. He had a spiritual intensity, he had a servant's identity, he had a shepherd's integrity. And then lastly, here's the closeout for today. Principle number seven, when God develops character, he is never in a hurry. When God is developing your character, my character, He is never in a hurry. And so David waited 14 years. It was a process. He wasn't a success overnight. He wasn't installed the next day. And I believe the qualities that we're going to look at in these average Joes over the next eight weeks are the kind of people that you and I can relate to. And he's going to use ordinary people. And here's the requirement. God's got his hand out, and are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be used? Even when it doesn't make sense, even when nobody else is doing that, when everybody else says, this is crazy, 
Can God use you? Let's pray, and Chad's going to come, and we're going to worship together. Heavenly Father, I just ask in, in this moment, who are we going to be become as a church, Lord? I'm praying that we'd have a whole bunch of average Joes and Josephines, so to speak, just ordinary people that God uses in extraordinary ways. And maybe this morning, you've been that person where you're feeling like, I am just treading water. And you're trying to believe God for something greater than who you are. Sometimes you're afraid to even think out loud because it feels so foolish. But your heart's desire is to be used by God. And you want to be a person after God's own heart. And you know you're just an average Joe. And you want to yield those aspirations, those dreams to Him. If you're that person today, would you look up at me and say, hey, I just want God to use me. I don't need the limelight. I just, God, would you use me? All right. All right. Yep. Yep. Me too. Yep. 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 And some of you are just, you're serving in obscurity. No one knows about your ministry. God bless you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing here among us. What a great day to celebrate fathers, to look at David, an eighth-round pick, an ordinary guy. Oh, God, though, we have you, that extraordinary God. We thank you for that privilege of serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Lord, that is our prayer. We, we do come to you just as we are. We're just ordinary people, but we have an extraordinary God. So we're grateful for the process. Give us that patience to, to live in the moment as we wait on you, looking to what you have. And so... Lord, we leave today with great delight, great joy that we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be perfect. But we're making progress. We're ordinary people with an extraordinary God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, enjoy the fellowship of the hot dogs, the cars. If you want to be prayed for or just talk to someone, we'll be up here if you want to talk. Thank you.